uh, visiting us this morning is probably worth noting that we've recently begun a new sermon series at London City Presbyterian Church, a new sermon series, a series entitled, What Does It Mean to Be a Reformed Church? What does it mean? We say we're a Reformed Church. What does that mean? That last week we looked at what was the first foundation of Reformed Christianity. You remember what that was? Uh, we looked at our uh, the high view, I suppose you would say, that we have of Scripture, the value that we place on God's holy and, and inerrant word. Well, this morning just now, in order to try and approach the second foundation of Reformed Christianity, let me throw this at you to start things off this morning. How would you answer this? Who is at the very center of the Christian faith? Who's at the very center of the Christian? Like, who's the Christian faith for, essentially? Who does it revolve around? How, how would you go about that? Who's, who's the focus of the Christian faith? How would you answer that? Well, isn't it true that if an alien landed in 2017, and that alien looked around at much of contemporary Christianity, isn't it maybe true that that alien would conclude that man is the center of Christianity? Isn't that maybe what would happen? That through the literature and the preaching, the conferences of much of sort of wider evangelicalism, doesn't it seem that Christianity today is kind of aimed at us? Isn't it? It seems to be there to kind of entertain us and to, to prosper us and to help us to flourish. Well, I want to say this to you this morning to start things off. And this is important. This is where... The Reformed Church must be different. And this is where we must stand apart. And this is the second foundation of a Reformed Church. You ready? The Reformed Church, first and foremost, is theocentric and not anthropocentric. Theocentric and not anthropocentric. And you see what I mean, don't you? Like above everything else, we have to focus on the glory of God. That's our focus. The focus of the church is God. Yes, we've got a great message for people, don't we? I mean, we do. We've got a wonderful message for men and women and boys and girls. A message of salvation in Christ. But the primary emphasis of a church like ours must be what? The primary emphasis is on the excellency, the supremacy, the majesty of the Lord Most High. We focus on God. Now, it's one thing for us to say just now, yeah, the focus has got to be on God. Sounds good. It's another thing to know something about this God's that we are to focus on and worship. So here's the plan for this morning, okay? What we're going to do is we're going to look at this portion of Scripture, Isaiah chapter 6. What we're going to do, we're going to listen, we're going to look, we're going to hear, we're going to consider what God's Word says about, about Him. What Scripture says about the focus of our faith. And to get the ball rolling just now, let's consider this first heading. What we see here is the vision of the greatness of God. Don't we see that in Isaiah 6? The vision of the greatness of God. Okay. Now, I suppose there's maybe an elephant in the room here. Is there maybe? Uh, you see what it is? 
We know Isaiah uh, chapter 6 really quite well, uh, don't we? I, I think most of us in here, I uh, would have thought, we know Isaiah. Isaiah 6 is familiar to many, many Christians. Now, despite that, what I want you to see is just how perfect this portion of scripture is for our purposes today. Because you see this short portion of scripture from verse 1 to 8, in there we see... Not one, but we see two key truths about our God from a reformed perspective. You got it? There's two great same truths about God. So what are they? Well, do this with me, friends. Would you look at how this chapter begins? Look at the beginning. Look at verse 1. Now, do you see the time marker? Do you see it right at the beginning? What are we told? We're told this vision it took place, now what does it say? It's in the year that King Uzziah died. Now do you see what that means? If it took place in the year, yeah, you could say it. Well that means it took place in the 8th century BC. Yeah, okay. What else does it mean? It means that this vision Isaiah has, that it took place at the very end of a time of great stability for the people of Israel. Because you see the guy that's mentioned there, King Uzziah. He had this epic reign. I mean, it really was in the, in the main, a sort of long and prosperous reign over the people of God. And so it was a time of great prosperity, both kind of spiritual prosperity and material prosperity for the people of Israel. Ah, but now what? He's dying. He's on his deathbed. And you've got to understand, on top of that, the Assyrian army had advanced at this very point here. And they are threatening the people of Israel. So do you now get a sense of the atmosphere of the text? Like, how are the people feeling? They are, whoa, uncertain. All of that stability has come to an end, hasn't it? And they are anxious, aren't they? They're worried about, well, wait a minute, what, 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 what comes next? Well, it's into that situation that God grants to Isaiah this great, this great vision. But I'm going to turn this over to you. You're not going to get a chance to sleep this morning. I'm going to be turning things over to you today. So, you ask me that, answer me this, friends. What is it that Isaiah sees in the vision? What does he see? How would you answer that? He sees, he sees the temple, doesn't he? He sees the temple. Maybe it's a dream. Maybe it's a vision. Maybe he's actually there when he gets this vision, but he sees the temple. Now, where else? What else? Who else does he see? Who does he see? He's the obvious thing to say. He sees before him. He sees God. But friends, where does he see him? Do you, do you get the picture that you have here? That Isaiah the prophet, he looks through the temple and he looks through to the most holy place He sees the Ark of the Covenant and he raises his eyes above the Ark of the Covenant and he sees God. And where is God? He is seated on a a throne. So do you see the message that God is giving to the people? The message that God is giving to Isaiah? What's he saying? Is it Uzziah that reigns? Is it the Assyrians who reigns? What's the message? No, God is king. Isn't that the message of this, of this vision here? That it is our God who has the government of all things upon his soldiers. He is the, the, the great potentate of time. God is king. God reigns. God rules. Now, I need you to understand that what I've just said there is a great distinctive 
of the Reformed faith. And we in here, and Reformed churches, we affirm as strongly as we can the sovereignty of God. But maybe as I say those words to you just now this morning, maybe they're immediately met with objection. Are they? Because some from other branches of Christianity, let's say, they would take issue with that, wouldn't they? They would say, how dare you say that? That (laughs) the sovereignty of God, belief in the sovereignty of God is a distinctive of a reformed church. All Christians believe that God is sovereign. That's not a distinctive of a reformed church. But I want you to think about that. Look, many Christians, they believe, they affirm that God is sovereign, but they do only up until a point, don't they? They say, God is sovereign, and we begin to talk about free will. God is sovereign until we begin to talk about the application of salvation or natural forces. And you see again, this is where we are different. In a reformed church, we affirm the sovereignty of God first and before everything else, above and beyond everything else. Affirm God, our God is sovereign. He is king. And do you see how beautiful that is? Because do you see what it means? Like from the sparrows in the sky to the battles in the spiritual realms, to the dominion over all the universe, to the, see the tiniest little details in your life this morning. What does it mean? It means that what Isaiah saw over your life too, it's true. God is king. God reigns. So we see the sovereignty of God in this vision. But what did I say a moment ago? I said two essential truths about God. For the second one, I want to speak to the, the boys and girls. Boys and girls, you also are not allowed to sleep. This morning, okay? Or if you were sleeping, you have to wake up right now. So, boys and girls, you maybe saw when Mr. Priest came out to read this portion of scripture, did you notice that you were introduced to some heavenly beings in this ring? You see that? They were mentioned, they were called, wonder if you got the name of them, they were called Seraphim, weren't they? And in your worksheet that some of the boys and girls are doing just now, I have got you to try and note down what these seraphim do with their wings. So you ready for this? I'm going to help you with this. Okay? And maybe the people around you, boys and girls, will help you as well. So what do the seraphim do with their wings? With the first two wings they cover their... They cover their face. Such... It is the majesty of God that they were not permitted even to gaze upon our Lord. What do they do with the second set of wings? They cover their They cover their feet. Such is the majesty of God. Perhaps they are not even allowed to go their own direction. The third set of wings, what did they do? They fly. They fly. There's movement. Do you love these seraphim, boys and girls? Do you know what is marvelous? They're not a fairy tale that one day in Christ Jesus we will see with our own eyes. These seraphim, they're marvelous. 
But friends, in here, you see, don't you, that the emphasis in the text is not on how these seraphim look. What's the emphasis of the text? It is on the seraphim's song. And so that really leads us to a question, doesn't it? You see, if these heavenly beings... If they are magnifying the holiness of God, what does that tell us of our God? I mean, what does it mean that God, our God, is a holy God? What does that mean? I don't know if you like jigsaws or not. There was a woman in a previous church that I was in who was obsessed with jigsaws. But maybe you'll do this. Maybe you will think of the holiness of God just now as the simplest of all jigsaws, a jigsaw of just two pieces. Because understand this, friends, that God being holy means that he is different to you. In fact, that is the very essence of the biblical word for holiness, the word kadosh. It means that God is separate to us. You understand that? He is distinct from us. Actually, something that is emphasized in the location of the throne in verse 1. Do you see where is the throne? It is high, isn't it? And it is lifted up. You, You see the message. God is above us. He is beyond us. He is transcendent. He is different to you and to me. But then that just takes us to the second piece of the jigsaw. Hopefully it will click in, because what do we ask then? He's different. How is he different? We understand, friends, that these seraphim were not praising God as distinct just because of his being. It's not just that he is the creator and we are creatures. They were praising him as distinct in his nature. Distinct in his moral and ethical Purity. And you must understand that throughout the Bible, see when your God is praised as holy, that's what's in view. It is his moral, his ethical perfection, his righteousness, his purity. And surely when you consider that this morning, you begin quake. You begin to tremble. Because what's true? This God of purity and holiness that appeared to Isaiah in the temple. This is the same God you appear before just now. That's what's happening in here spiritually. Friends, we have entered into the presence of the Almighty, the Eternal God. Do you not quake? Do you not tremble? We stand before God just now, a God of righteousness, a God of purity, a God of excellence, of authority, a God of truth. What is the focus of the Reformed Church? We worship a sovereign and holy Lord. So we see vision, the vision of the greatness of God. A second thing we see this morning is the response uh, to the to the greatness of God. You surely see the logic. You surely do. I mean, such as the splendor of this temple vision, we're surely asking, we want to know, don't we? How does Isaiah, a mere man, a sinner, how does he deal with this? Like, I mean, what is his response to seeing the king of kings? And what does that tell you about the way that you live the Christian life? Yeah, the response to this. Now this is going to sound strange. 
and I'm not going to do it. But I do think it would be legitimate at this point. If we're thinking about the response to this image of God, I think it would be legitimate for us to talk about evangelism. To talk about reformed witness. And maybe you see how. Because if you know Isaiah, what is Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah 6 is Isaiah's call to prophetic ministry, isn't it? This is Isaiah being called by God to go and do what? To tell other people God's word. And, and, and what happens here? What does God do? In order to propel Isaiah out into the world, in order to fuel him for witness, what does God do? God gives him this vision of his grandeur and his glory. It's that the saints propels Isaiah out. And you see the lesson for us, don't you? Fundamentally, what must a reformed church be? It must be outward looking. A reformed church must be, by nature, evangelistic. Because if what we said is true a moment ago, surely we're propelled by it. If we focus on the glory of God, what should happen? That should push us out, that should propel us out to tell people the wonder and the glory of God. We could talk about evangelism. We're not going to do it. I want to go another way. And it's maybe, to start with, going to make me sound really arrogant. By the end of this illustration, you will see it is not that, that way at all. I used to think that I was really good at cricket. I used to think that I was really, really good at cricket. I did. When I was younger, almost every single night of the week, rain, hail, snow, I would be playing cricket. Almost every night of the weekend, I'd be travelling around Scotland, playing in all these games, doing okay, you know, taking wickets, occasional maybe right up and these sort of things. And I, was, I thought I was the bee's knees. I thought I was wonderful at cricket. Then this happened. I got an invite to come to London to play at Lords to have a trial at what is called the MCC School in the West End of London. And so, you know, arrogant Andy packs his cricket bag, chucks it on the train, come down to London, go into the MCC school, here's the trials, open the door, could not believe my eyes. Here were all these other guys my age, but they were all taller than me and bigger than me, and they were faster than me, and they were better than me. And there was me, you know, thinking that was wonderful. Scottish terms, maybe. But now what can I see? Now I can see exactly where I stood in the pecking order. Do you see what happened? What happened? I had been exposed by a new standard, hadn't I? I had been exposed by a higher standard. And I'm saying to you this morning, is that not exactly what is happening in Isaiah chapter 6? Because you look with me to verse 5. Look at his first words. Look at it here. He sees the glory of God. And what does he say? He says, woe is me. He speaks of his worthiness, his inadequacy. Do you see what is happening here? He's being exposed. Here's a man who maybe thought that he was good. Right? Like he maybe thought that he's doing all right morally, ethically, spiritually. Nah. 
pray to get him. I'll pray. Now what happens? In face of the holiness of God, a new standard appears, doesn't it? And he realizes what he's truly like. He sees what he is in the pecking order. He sees his sin. And what are we told? He's cut to the heart. He is undone. Surely we see ourselves there, don't we? My friends, are we thinking this morning that we're good enough for God? Are we thinking that we're morally okay, holy enough for heaven? We see it there. What are we? We're filthy. And we are wretched, wretched people. But is there application for the church in this? Is there an area of the Christian walk that this speaks to? Well, you bet your bottom dollar there is. See, do this with me. Answer me this. In verse 5, what is the precise focus of Isaiah's contrition? Do you see it in verse 5? Look at it. It's contrition, repentance. What's the focus of it? What is it? Is it not his voice? Is it not his words? Because look what he says. He says, Woe is me, for I am a man of what? Unclean what? Lips. It's his voice. It's his words. He says, I live amongst the people of unclean lips. Do you see what's happening? In the face of the holiness of God, Not only does he realize he's been saying things that he should never, ever have been saying, but it's more than that, isn't it? To the sound of a seraphim song, what does he realize? He's never praised God in the way that God deserves. Isn't that it? He realizes he's never had the awe and the reverence and the attention and praise that, that Almighty God. So you see the place of application, don't you? This speaks volumes to the contemporary praise of the church. And surely, friends, of all the places where a reformed church should be distinct, it is in our corporate praise of God. Because would you not, friends, agree with this? That it is in the praise of much of modern Christianity. It is in the praise of wider evangelicalism that we see that man-centeredness most clearly, isn't it? Do you not agree? So much contemporary praise and worship. Who's the focus of that? Who is it for? Doesn't it seem to be for us a lot of the time? To inspire us. Make us feel a bit better to move us emotionally to maybe even entertain us but how should it be like how should the people of god respond to god in the light of this should we not come before him with fear and trembling in our praise given the glory and majesty of god should it not be the case that sunday by sunday we come prepared to this place we're coming to meet god And should it not be that as we lift up our voices, as we enter the courts in worship, should it not be that our praise is marked with awe and marked with reverence? Do you realize what you've got in front of you in Isaiah 6? I think it is the goal of Reformed Christianity, of biblical Christianity. What is our purpose? We are to mirror 
This seraphim. Isn't that what we're to do? That we are to sing with reverence. God, you are the holy, holy, holy Lord Most High. So we see this vision of the greatness of God. Then we see response to the greatness of God. But we close with the evidence of the greatness of God. Friend, how did you uh, come into this place just now? Like, if I was to ask you, how are you spiritually this morning? What would your answer be to that? Like, is it the case that you're here and you're not a Christian? Like, you, you know in your heart of hearts you are not right with God. You know that though there's people around you, people close to you, who seem to have this confidence and a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't have that. And your heart is heavy. I want, I want you to realize there is good news. There is hope for you in Isaiah chapter 6. Now to see it, look with me to verse 6. Have a look at verse 6. Now what happens here? At this point we're told that one of these winged beasts, they, the seraphim, fly to Isaiah. Imagine this. And what did they do? They have a burning coal. Remember those words, a burning coal in his hand, the seraphim. And what does he do? He touches Isaiah on the lips and declares him to be, therefore, clean. He is forgiven. You see what you've got in front of you. It's a, a sign, a pointer to salvation. Isaiah has been shown how this awesome God is going to make his people clean and acceptable to him. You see, it's a sign of salvation. Now, would you allow me to do this as we close? Allow me just to point a few things about that out to you just now. Please, please let me do it. Do you see, first of all, that that cleansing in Isaiah 6 is entirely a work of God alone. And how often we get that wrong, don't we? Some say that we, we have to try and earn and achieve some favor with God. Other people, what did they say? That we have to decide for Jesus. <laughs> we have to choose Christ. I'm saying to you, what does Isaiah do? He receives cleansing here. What does he do to receive it? He doesn't do anything. And how does he ask and plead with God for this cleansing? What does he say to God? Do you know what he says? He says nothing. He is a statue. He's silent. He's impotent. He does nothing. Do you understand? The work of cleansing is God's work. It's a divine work. Second to this cleansing is instantaneous and it is immediate I read the most (laughs) confusing thing this week you can imagine in sermon preparation there's a lot of reading involved you get that? There's a lot of reading, and you're just reading some stuff that's so confusing <laughs> and so highfalutin sometimes. And I was reading this textual commentary, and the guy said this. He said, here, how about this for a phrase? You ready for it? He said, what we have in Isaiah chapter 6 is a set of coordinate perfect verbs. 
A set of coordinate perfect verbs. And I'll tell you, I'll be honest with you, it took me ages to work out what he was talking about there. Ages. A set of coordinate perfect verbs. But now I see it. Now you see it, don't you? What's he saying? He's saying this took place immediately. That as soon as that seraph came to Isaiah, as soon as he touched his lips, what happened? Bang! Immediately he is declared clean. And isn't it beautiful? Because do you see what it means? God's work of justification is an immediate work. You understand? God has not infused the righteousness of Christ into us in a way that develops through our good works. That's not it! God, upon our repentance and faith, what has he done? He has imputed the righteousness of Christ into you. He has done it immediately. He has done it instantaneously. And you are declared there and then, what? By God, just. It has already happened for the people of God. And then the last thing this morning, the very last thing in Isaiah 6 here, we see that this work of cleansing and salvation comes through The sacrifice of another. And because it's the last thing, I'm sure you will do this with me. Because we're closing with this, I'm sure you're with me. Would you look to the end of verse 6? We close with this, the end of verse 6. And answer me this, where does that coal come from? Do you see where it comes from? The coal? It comes from the altar. You know your Old Testament. What was the altar? The altar is the place of sacrifice. The cleansing comes from the place of sacrifice. The altar was the place where animals were slain in the temple. It was the place where the blood of animals was shed to make atonement for sin. So what is the obvious thing for your minister to say to you? What is God doing? He's pointing Isaiah to Calvary. Isn't that what's happening? He's showing Isaiah that this cleansing, this forgiveness, it is going to come through sacrifice. It is going to come through a greater sacrifice. It's going to come through a complete, a once and for all sacrifice. The sacrifice of Christ. But this is what I want you to do. Oh, this morning, I want you to consider the condescension of that event on Calvary Hill. Because again, answer me this. Who was it Isaiah saw on the throne? Who does he see on the throne? You're going to say God to me? Well, what about Johnny's reading in John chapter 12? Who did Isaiah see? He saw the very second person of the Trinity. What was lifted up in that temple, what Isaiah actually saw, was the eternal exalted glory of the Christ. Do you see the condescension? Put those two things together. Do you see what has happened? That king, he's laid down his life for you. Is that not incredible? This king of Isaiah chapter 6, he is the one who did this work. This one of sovereignty, this one of holiness, this one of righteousness, this exalted one, the one of excellency and supremacy. He is the one who took upon himself flesh. This great one. He has lowered himself to align himself with humanity. And he, this king, is the one 
who's made atonement for your wickedness and your sin. Do you see what you have? The king became the coal. The king became the coal. And all that your sin might be forever and ever and ever washed away. Friend, when you come as a Christian to the table in a moment, will you not consider that great condescension of the Lord Jesus Christ? Friends, God is the foundation of Reformed Christianity. And who is our God? He is a God of sovereignty. He is God of holiness. But wow, we can praise him today. Because he's a God of saving, amazing grace. Let's pray.